Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to the latest Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. We hope you're enjoying the podcast and if you are, you can now support us on the Patreon crowdfunding platform. You'll get lots of benefits, including access to our next live stream on Thursday the 7th of May. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast and help us in our very important work of giving the nation something else to listen to in the morning apart from thought for the day. On today's edition... The current enforced lockdown is affecting all of us in in pretty different ways, but it's falling especially hard on those suffering from mental ill health. For many of those sufferers, the situation is that they're at best stuck at home with family, but without as much access to their usual support mechanisms. And of course, at worst, caught in potentially toxic, dangerous home environments or simply all alone. Even very early on in the shutdown, the Police Federation reported increases in suicides and suicide attempts. And further into the crisis, we just don't really know how bad the problem is. But with me to talk about this is one of my favourite people, my former boss and phenomenal campaigner, Will Hyam, currently Director of Programme Innovation at Rethink Mental Illness, the charity that connects mental health groups and services. Hello, Will. Thanks for joining us. Oh, hi, Naomi. My pleasure. How are you doing? Very well. Very well. Negotiating, working and family life all together. It's like living in a pre-industrial time. <laughs> Children toast while doing meetings. Well, to kick us off, I, I think it's kind of important that we separate out the issues relating to those who were already unwell with with poor mental health from those whose health has deteriorated because of the lockdown. Will, um, are longer-term sufferers in some senses better placed to cope with lockdown because they're more familiar with treating their illness um, than those who may be suffering from their first bout? Uh, well, we've just surveyed um, some 2,000 people who are living with severe mental illness. Um, and we found that while overall at the kind of population level, there's quite a complex story to tell about how there are ups and downs of lockdown Uh, and life in the crisis. We found that 80% of those living with severe mental illness found that their mental health had got worse or much worse. And I think more than anything else, that is down to the fact that recovery um, or maintaining a stable state of well-being is very often intimately linked with your routines and also some trusted Mm. relationships that you use to help you navigate through the world. I can give examples in different 
um, conditions, how this affects it. But that's really what's causing um, a really tremendous increase in distress uh, at the more severe mm. mental illness. And, and what, what are the um, sort of typical disruptions to the support structures and routines of those affected? Um, you know, are are they able to access, you know, sort of most or hardly any of, of the services that were available to them before? Well, let me give you a few examples of, of how it can affect individuals. So um, if you say take eating disorders mm-hmm. as, a very sort of, as a very serious mental illness to live with, we hear from our services and our lines from people who are finding the business of going to a supermarket and having to walk down aisles that they might ordinarily avoid stressful. They're finding that foods that they consider safe foods are not there. And the business of living in a house full of stockpiles of food can be distressing. I'll give you another example. It's quite characteristic for people living with long-term conditions like schizophrenia to be relying on, on a parent, often an elderly parent, as their main sort of carer and conduit uh, into the world. And obviously lockdown and the people uh, having to be in isolation um, when they're over a certain age can massively affect that. And you know, finally, very quickly, there is a huge world of peer support groups that have a rhythm of meeting up every week, people checking on in on each other, people saying what a good service is or where to go for help. And those have obviously had to move online or onto the telephone. So mm-hmm. services are adapting. Everywhere we're finding people are moving to phone rather than face-to-face, other than in crisis. But it's a massive disruption to the kind of rhythms and routines that underpin recovery and well-being. And sometimes there just is no real substitute for uh, you know, human contact and a hug and 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 that 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 off, that offline connection with humans that that we need as social creatures. Um, is there much new evidence that that COVID nineteen and its accompanying lockdown has triggered? mental ill health in in people who hadn't previously suffered. I mean, I know my own sort of relatively low-level anxiety absolutely skyrocketed a few weeks ago. Um, You know, are are, are there signs that that more and more people are being affected because of the situation we're now in? Well, at the minute, I think we're seeing, because so many services have been suspended, the usual data we'd use to look at distress isn't there. Um, People are holding themselves back from A&E, Uh, they're holding themselves back from calling the doctor. And particularly in child and adolescent services, they're holding back from contacting those. So it's quite hard to be certain of what really will be the end of people's capacity to manage anxieties and distress. I think Mm. looking ahead, this is also new that there hasn't been kind of formal modelling of need. Around the NHS, people are sort of taking as a reckoning around a 30% increase in need for mental health services at the end of this. And certainly one of the ways that people are looking at this is looking at the social factors that will increase people's sort of distress. Uh, So what we find going into recessions is that things like um, losing a job, things like debt, uh, are massive triggers of mental health crisis and exacerbate or bring on conditions uh, to an incredible degree. So one of the sort of ways people are looking at modelling this is looking at previous recessions and then mapping onto it the severity of the economic impact uh, and modelling the mental health uh, fallout, really, that way. 
Um, and, and, and I mean, 30% is, uh, you know, an incredible figure. Um, where should new sufferers go for help? Um, because it just may not have been a world they've sought to access before. Well, over the last couple of weeks, um, it has been amazing to spend so much time with NHS colleagues working at speed. I mean, this is a terrible situation, but it has brought out the best in people. And as of next year, uh, there was a plan to have a national helpline uh, around mental health. Uh, So there was a first point of contact. Instead, uh, that has been brought forward a year in a matter of weeks. And all of the local areas within the NHS um, are setting up or have set up helplines, which people can refer themselves to, to receive access to emotional support, advice. We, uh, and you'll, if, you, if you go to the NHS site and search for mental health, you will, you will be directed towards the best place in your area. We, we at Rethink, in a, in a small way, have just taken national what was previously um, a, a Welsh-only uh, peer online support system with moderators, which is called CLIC, C-L-I-C. And I know that around the country, um, uh, mental health charities are doing their best to make sure that everything they know that's useful is online or helplines are available. When someone is in crisis, they still need and and should seek um, urgent face-to-face help. Um, And as with many uh, physiological illnesses, there are, of course, varying degrees of severity within mental health. I mean, it goes without saying. But in our efforts as a society to be, you know, I hate using the word, but much more woke about mental health. Is there a risk that we kind of conflate all forms and inadvertently do a disservice to those suffering from severe mental health, mental Ill health? I, I think that that is a risk. I mean, we're, we're very proud of the Time to Change campaign that we've co-hosted with mine for 10 years now. And there's no doubt that um, you can see it in the corporate world, you can see it with employers, that it's now all right in a completely different way to talk about periods of um, mental ill health. However, I think there is there is a kind of gap in the line when it comes to severe mental illness. Um, it isn't just that if we understand more about our own experiences or our friends' experiences with, say, um, depression and anxiety at their more manageable, still horrible levels, that that, that, that mm. falls over at a certain point into an understanding of severe mental illness. I mean, we, we have a community of around 400,000 people in this country uh, who live with severe mental illness. And when you add in their families, that takes you to a really large number. We re- yeah. We've found that some 30% of people know someone who has been committed at some point in their lives. And that means that this is a huge community that we still find it hard to talk about. And I think that that level of um, almost like a, a frisson of un- disquiet when dealing with someone who's living with severe mental illness remains common uh, and it does remain stigmatised in our community. The desire is often, too often, to cross the road. Well, on the bunker, we frequently touch on intergenerational inequality. Um, and I've sort of wondered, is lockdown affecting 
age groups differently. Um, you know, young kids, they generally love spending time with their mum and dad. You know, they're a bit like dogs. They must just think that this is all great. But teenagers are definitely not designed to want to spend more than a couple of hours per day tops with their parents. They're, they're a bit more like cats. Um, but maybe I'm wrong because, you know, young people have grown up much more used to virtual digital existences and ways of communication maybe i'm wrong is are you seeing any kind of generational differences in the in the in the data around um mental health during this lockdown it's early to say i think one of the most worrying things though is a massive downturn in um the contact with child and adolescent mental health services so people are not calling out and i don't think that can be because the need isn't there and I think also you know, there are whole other elements that you add in um, to ad- adolescent life. Um, you know, while people might have the kind of the pleasure of lockdown in a stable relationship, it's unlikely that they would be cohabiting um, with their loved one uh, when you take the old age group. So suddenly not losing all of your routine, losing all of, often all of your physical activity, which is absolutely critical to health, mm. losing rhythm, structure, progress, having that kind of lowering sense of anxiety that something's gone wrong that we're seeing reported across all of our services. People are finding this very catastrophic. Um, and as you say, uh, being stuck with people who, given half a, half a chance you'd like to avoid, your parents, uh, must be taking some deep toll now, at what we know to be a very formative stage of life when it comes to people's relationship with their own mental health throughout their life. I mean, we still read, you know, in the newspapers aimed at the over 50s, um, lots about oversensitive millennial snowflakes, etc. As a society, do we take the mental health of young people seriously enough? Just before all this kicked off, the NHS plan came about. um, And I think that was extremely brave and far-reaching on mental health. I mean, it's a credit to the fact that the system saw that for generations we've been failing people severely ill and came up with a plan. It's a credit that because of all of the publicity, perhaps, and the genuine concern around mental illness, it got massive new funding. And one of the main areas in that was really um, uh, reshaping um, services for for children, adolescents and younger people. So getting rid of the kind of cliff edge at 18 where people are suddenly flung into the adult system, making sure schools are ready to deal with mental illness um, and ready to teach people about well-being. That's all good, and none of that is cancelled. That will still happen. But I think we we have to be clear that, um, that at every age there is a discomfort talking about severe mental illness. So, I mean, you're completely right that... Um, you know, it's often seen as, it's, it's often minimised amongst children and younger people, and certainly their services were extraordinarily underfunded. But equally, um, there is an attitude from GPs and care homes that depression is just part of old age. So I think we have to take a really right-space view of how these services mm. work. Um, and also, just to add to it, mental health services and charities have had a very patchy record in reaching out to BAME communities. So it's about a rights-based approach. You have to know your population. You have to talk to people. You have to ask what their needs are. Then you have to meet those needs and then go back to people and ask 
did did that give you what you needed? And and that that has to be the whole approach, co-producing what the whole population needs, not just sort of turning out more and more of the same services and saying they must be popular because there's always a queue. What are your your concerns about the long-term impact of the virus in particular, both on individuals but but also on the ability of our health service to cope? On, On the way mental health services will have to be in the future, I think we've had for too long a system where there are a large number of people who are too ill for the care that's available for them in their community, largely at GPs, and not well enough to be in mental health crisis. So A&E, we've had a 100% rise in mental health presentations to A&E in the last 10 years. We've had waiting times uh, extend to 14 weeks before assessment and 19 weeks before treatment on top of the 14 weeks in the community for people living with severe mental illness. So the system was already not fit for purpose. And if you go back, I mean, despite the best efforts of the staff involved, it's just historic and it's not even... The failing of one government is the failing of generations of governments. If you go forward, I think you have to look back at those factors I mentioned that underpin recovery and, and mental illness, that they are primarily social and they're based in a community. Um, so the way we, mm-hmm. what we have to bring the care to people in the community that, that, that sort of ramps up and down around their needs um, rather than waiting till they get ill enough to be referred and then to be taken out of their life and treated um, and we have to manage the social factors with debt advice, with housing, with helping people to stay active, socially connected, helping with bereavement and all the rest of it. And I think this will probably accelerate our move as a country towards that sort of approach to um, treating mental illness and maintaining mental health in the community. Well, I, I so so very much hope so because it, it you know it's incredibly important, and and you've you've you know laid out just how every single touch point is now desperately badly affected by this lockdown. So finally, for our listeners, what's the best way to deliver support to somebody you might be worried about in terms of their mental ill health um, when we're being physically separated at the moment? I think what, what you have to do is to start to talk to them about what they need. So in all these cases, it's about... There's no magic science to it. It's just um, about talking to people about what they need and helping them to achieve it. Obviously, if you're seriously worried about somebody or unable to communicate, then you need to call on local local services to help. It's all too common in dealing um, with people living with mental illness to find it scary to approach and talk, to find the conversation difficult and unsettling, and to either not help people or to give them what you think they want. Um, But the conversation has got to be about what support does someone need in essentially in sticking to their kind of recovery and well-being goals. It might be exercise, it might be social uh, content, it might even be fun and distraction, but start with the conversation uh, with them. Will, thank you so much for joining us um, and, and highlighting just how important it is uh, that, that we're looking out for those with poor mental ill health and in navigating the, the, this incredibly complex issue for us. Um, listeners, there are lots of resources uh, that Will's spoken about, um, and uh, if you haven't picked them up and you don't think you can google them then head over to rethink.org um, they've got lots of resources listed there
Don't forget our live stream on Thursday, the 7th of May. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up. We'll be back with another Bunker Daily tomorrow. Until then, look after yourselves and those around you. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. On audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.